Okay, today my guest is Professor Bodo Schlegelner. And I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Bodo as a person. Professor Schlegelner is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar. And finally, as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Bodo is a fellow of the AIB, the Chartered Institute of Marketing and the Academy of Marketing Science. Uh, he has published over 150 journal articles, 14 books in English, German, and Mandarin, and has over 200 academic conference presentations. He is among the most prolific researchers in international marketing. He has received many research awards, such as the Journal of Marketing Education uh, Award and the Torelli Award from the Journal of International Marketing. Uh, he frequently appears in domestic and international TV, radio, and newspaper interviews. Uh, Bodo was editor-in-chief of the Journal of International Marketing and serves or served on the editorial boards of uh, our top-ranked journals. He is also the chair of the Association of MBAs, a global accreditation organization. Thank you, Bodo, for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, first question, what did you want to become when you were a child? <laughs> To be honest, um, I always I hated that question even when I was a child. Um, I, the, the, this not serious answer is chair of the Association of MBAs, but I mean seriously, I, I did not have a clear idea, uh, an absolutely zero zero idea. I wanted to be an adult because uh, apparently they seemed to have more fun uh, and they could stay up longer. But other than that, I was uh, fairly vague in terms of where I was going. Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Germany near Cologne and uh, basically also went to school there for pretty much everything, including my undergraduate degree. So can you remember the earliest moment of awareness between international versus domestic? Um, yes, uh, my grandparents uh, lived near the Belgian border, in Germany near the Belgian border. And uh, from time to time, we uh, ventured out and uh, had uh, chips or French fries, or um, yeah, I think in the US you call them French fries, pommes frites. And uh, so I became aware as a child that other countries have something to offer, which uh, your own country has not, or it was more difficult to find. And uh, that, that intrigued me. So I thought, oh, that, that's interesting. They have something we don't have. So uh, I became interested and aware of the fact that somehow uh, other countries have uh, interesting bits and pieces on, on offer. How do you choose academia? And specifically within academia, how did you choose this area? Um, well, the I was always interested in um, foreign countries and traveling to foreign countries, etc. And uh, after my undergraduate degree in Cologne, I had the opportunity to go to the University of Manchester. And uh, in, com in contrast uh, to Cologne, Manchester was suddenly very, very international. I suddenly had classmates from India, from Japan, uh, from, from the US, and uh, they, are, they were offering insights into cultures and uh, insights into different perspective, uh, perspectives, which I wasn't uh, used to and which uh, were just intriguing for me. So I thought, well, I have to visit these countries, and what way of uh, what better way of visiting countries than become an academic and have an excuse to go there? <laughs> that's funny. Uh, what's something uh, that's not on your CV that people might find interesting about you? 
Ooh, that's difficult. I'm not quite sure why people find it interesting, but uh, what's not on my CV is uh, that I'm I'm sailing uh, and I'm kayaking. So I like uh, water sports. I'm not particularly good at either sailing or kayaking, but at least I like it. So that's not on, on my CV. Okay. So sailing is uh, individual activity or as a team? Uh, uh, no, in, in, individual. Individual. Okay. Um, I uh, I have a little boat and I go out, and to, but I'm a sort of good weather sailor um so uh, if if it's getting too rough and too cold and so on i'm i'm away i'm not doing it uh, if you stopped doing uh, what you were well, what you're doing today and uh, choose a different path a second alternative path but what would it be what's the second best alternative for you well i'm I'm glad that you say second best because I still believe that academia for me is is like a paid hobby. Um, I, I really like it. Uh, so second best would be perhaps to become a travel writer because again that would give me the opportunity to go to uh, other countries and and uh, immerse myself into different cultures. And I think that would be definitely the second best. Perfect. And uh, regrets. Is there anything that you wish you would have done or done differently? <laughs> Ooh, um, the more interesting question is, uh, you know, what I have done and wouldn't have done. But um, difficult to say. Uh, I So far, I have never been to Alaska. And, and uh, somehow or the other, I really fancy Alaska, albeit in the summer. I would not venture there in the winter because I don't do winters very well. Uh, rather spend winters in Asia, but um, I um, that that's definitely a country which is on my bucket list. Uh, I taught altogether so far in thirty-one different countries, but somehow nobody ever invited me to Alaska. So I'm still I'm still open to that. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, what was your biggest failure, and what did you learn from it? Um, <laughs> I think that that's that's an interesting question because I I have a very um, specific failure, namely when I was uh, even younger than I was now than I'm now, um, I was expelled from grammar school uh, in Germany. Uh, you had to go to <laughs> grammar school, and uh, the uh, basically you are you are graded from one to six, where five and six are failures. Five is just an ordinary failure, and six. As like a social outcast, uh, essentially meaning that you don't even understand the basics of uh, of the subject. And I actually failed in in two languages, in Latin, believe it or not, and in English. So um, when that happened, uh, I found myself going to a uh, a different school, and uh, the different school didn't lead to or didn't allow me to study. Uh, it was in Britain they would call it an O level, so I had to finish with an O level. And so, uh, based on that, I, uh, I started a, an apprenticeship at Deutsche Bank. And uh, while I was doing the apprenticeship, I had to go to night school uh, on top of the apprenticeship and uh, uh, do my A-levels. And then eventually that was uh, giving me the opportunity to study. But the, the failure was very uh, traumatic to a certain degree because I found myself suddenly realizing, my gosh, I, I missed out uh, on, in terms of opportunities. And uh, that shook me up. And I actually became very good at school. And uh, when I did my A-level, it was, uh, was very, very good results and I could study very nicely. But uh, that uh, failure experience really motivated me to, uh, let's say, get my act together. Interesting. Um, my uncle actually failed, also exactly, exactly like that I mentioned to the bank. 
then he became a great banker actually but um, <laughs> i mean your story just uh, exactly sounded like my uncle um, uh, okay what are you most proud of your, your uncle is not called bodo is he <laughs> no unfortunately not uh, what are you most proud of oh um i i think to a certain degree, uh, the older I get, the more proud I get on uh, in terms of my my former students, um, because somehow or the other, uh, I can now point to students uh, that the PhD students who have now uh, become professors in uh, Australia, in Canada, uh, in France, in Japan, and in the UK and in Switzerland. Um, so a number of of sort of former PhD students have gone into academia and uh, are quite successful. And that's that's nice to see. Uh, that, that really is nice to see. Um, the second thing is perhaps that I had the opportunity to found a business school uh, here, the VU Executive Academy, which is um, a little business school uh, within our university, focusing on executive MBAs, LLMs, uh, executive education, uh, non-degree education, et cetera. And uh, in this context, uh, I also actually just before I founded uh, an executive MBA and led it to uh, into the Financial Times uh, top 50 within a few years. So that is also a nice uh, a nice thing. Um, yeah, what else? AMBA is still fun. The Association of MBAs uh, being a chair there is is good fun because we have businesses or rather accredited schools in uh, over 70 countries. Uh, worldwide, and uh, that uh, means that they have to be visited sooner or later, so it brings you into all sorts of dif different uh, countries again, uh, such as uh, unusual countries sometimes, Fiji, uh, and uh, so on and so forth, so that is, is quite interesting, and uh, perhaps last but not least, that the, the king of Thailand uh, gave me an honorary degree, which is uh, which is quite good because he used to be only quote unquote the crown prince, and then when his father passed away, he became the, the king. And uh, I was so happy for him to become the king uh, because it much it's much cooler to say that you got your honorary degree from a king rather than a mere crown prince. So I thought <laughs> yeah, that's, that's cool. <laughs> okay. Um... Okay, let's talk about uh, research. Uh, how do you explain your research to people who don't read uh, marketing journals, IB journals, strategy journals? How do you explain it to uh, uh, people in a pub, in, in a village? Um, the famous village question, how do you explain to uh, villagers who, are, uh, who don't know much about uh, yep. the world, etc.? Well, I would say that I teach um, current and future leaders on how to conduct business more efficient, efficiently and effectively, um, and also socially responsible. And in order to support this teaching, I carry out research and uh, and publish my research in books and journals. And uh, I think this, in a way, is important in as far as that uh, it teaches people to how to become wealthy and uh, also how to uh, perhaps understand each other better um, in, in terms of uh, different cultures, different habits, uh, and so on and so forth. So um, it is a wealth creation um, argument here, but also a mutual understanding argument, which I would put forward. About uh, 
I mean, I normally say omitted variables, but it's neglected variables or things that that have been understudied in the in the field. What are some of the uh, omitted variables in your opinion? Concepts, uh, constructs, uh, things that we should have thought more 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 about in ID. Mm, that's a difficult question because um, until a few years ago, I would have said that uh, that. Uh, IB is too profit focused, um, but this is changing and I'm glad it is changing because while profit is important and no question it is important, it is not the um, be all end all uh, of, of things. So we should also focus on social responsibility and among others, we should perhaps focus on uh, different outcome variables in addition to profit. So how can we capture um, other um, variables that are meaningfully complementing profit. Uh, Sorry, what, would, uh, what would be uh, different variables that capture the different outcome? Uh... Well, I mean, to, to give you to give you an example, a concrete example, I was um, at Incaye in Costa Rica um, about a month ago, and uh, they have a research center on on happiness. Um, and the idea is to say, okay, uh, we are always uh, measuring countries uh, in terms of gross domestic product per head, and then see whether this is developing positively or negatively. And so um, the uh, guy guys at Incaye and other business schools, they're now looking at how you can capture happiness of a population. Um, is, is this something which you can actually measure? If so, how can you measure it and so on and so forth? So I think these kind of things are, are quite, uh, quite interesting and thought provoking. Okay, interesting. You said uh, IB was uh, profit focused, now we sh it, it is shifting to social responsibility. Um, yeah, I think it is more and more shifting towards social responsibility. I, in, in general, I think more scholars are getting involved in um, CSR, social responsibility issues, uh, sustainability issues. Um, so from that point of view, I think this exclusive focus on profit, which we had, let me put 10 years ago, before the financial crisis, let's say it that way, um, that I think has uh, has been watered down, and it's quite good that it has been watered down, and other variables are coming to the fore. But um, one has to be careful that we don't um, don't go overboard, because at the end of the day, multinationals still have to pay, and, and companies in general still have to generate profits in order to do good. But to think about what else is important other than profit, I think, is definitely a good move. Uh, about creativity in scholarship, what's your uh, take on that? How, where does creativity come from? Um, I think creativity, to me, is thinking out of the box. Um, so to think about a phenomenon, perhaps from a different angle, from a different perspective. Um, to give you an example, I had. Uh, I was uh, involved in a GIPS article some some time ago, which was on materialism. And uh, everybody in the world knows materialism is bad. 
So our take on that was, is there a good side to materialism? Um, and uh, we wrote on, on materialism in Asia and discovered some positive sides, some positive aspects on materialism. So essentially, if you have a phenomenon and, and perhaps put it in a completely different light, look at it in a completely different way, that is uh, interesting and, and very often uh, a sign of, uh, of creativity, I would argue. Hmm. Uh, I was in a doctor's office and this young uh, child was uh, watching Barbie. And Barbie said, uh, there is nothing in life that uh, a little glitter and shopping wouldn't fix. <laughs> so, <laughs> so from that one, yeah, happiness is there, creativity is right there. Yeah. But it's all in the gl gl glitter. Uh, about idle curiosity, what does your mind uh, think of when it wanders uh, in idle state? Uh, Such as now. Um, <laughs> no, well, um, <clears throat> difficult to say. I, I think um, when I'm when I'm idle, I tend to be silly um, and uh, and think about silly things such as whether I should teach in fancy dress or um, you know whether we have the next AIB conference on the cruise ship and uh, so on so it's it's basically non-serious stuff <laughs> that is actually quite creative <clears throat> where do you see IB as a field in the next uh, what was going to be the next big trend in the field in the next five to ten years well, you, you know the famous statement of Albert Einstein, who said, I never think about the future. It comes early enough. And, and with increasing age, I, I, I can very much relate to that. But um, so with that caveat, uh, that's difficult to think about the future. Um, I think um, similar to what I said before, I think the, the purpose of multinationals will become more important. So the question of what are multinationals really for? Um, not just profit, but for example, a multinational role in achieving UN sustainability goals, um, or in general, the, the relationship between multinationals and, and politics. Um, what I'm after is here, the we have all seen the era where people were talking about the death of nation states and, and were saying, okay, nation states are, are, are dead, multinationals are taking over the world, et cetera, et cetera. And now, um, the situation has reversed and people have seen how important politics come becomes again and uh, i think in the next few years that will be with us quite some time so we will be talking more about um let's say decoupling of supply chains uh the digital divide between china and the rest of the world and issues like this so uh, the impact on polit of politics on multinationals and what they can and cannot do, I think, will become more important. I mean, you're talking about this uh, evolution, actually, and that actually leads to my next question about the, is it a fruitful evolution? Uh, you mentioned decoupling. You mentioned uh, a lot of emphasis on, you actually placed a lot of emphasis on social responsibility. Is the swing of a pendulum? This is going to come back again, and actually, it is coming back. Every day there are riots in England, in Germany is at unrest. Uh, economic situation is dire, and things are not really moving towards that social responsibility uh, side, uh, that that extreme as much as it was a couple of years ago. Uh, what is this evolution, in your opinion? Uh, uh, what are we losing along the way? Uh, are we moving away from the, uh, the primary IB uh, 
foundations and moving into a different area? Um, well, the primary IDP area somehow was always interdisciplinary by nature, because even at the very beginning, when people talked about how to internationalize, um, how to um, essentially enter foreign markets, different uh, foreign entry options, etc. Uh, these were always questions that had something to do with politics. And these were always questions that had to do something with cultural differences, etc. So uh, inter in, uh, IB, in my view, from, even from the very beginning, was very, very um, interdisciplinary because it always involved a mix of uh, political science, psychology, um, finance, uh, sociology, marketing, uh, strategy, and so on. So it it all came together, and I think that that makes the the subject more uh, or, or makes the subject so interesting. Um, does it go in? In pendulum, um, in the pendulum form, that we swing from one extreme to the other. I, I don't know. Um, I mean, people, people essentially very often say history repeats itself. Possibly, um, if you look at the speed of globalization um, and you look at the history of globalization, we had periods where globalization slowed down dramatically and then picked up again. So maybe there is a repeat at the moment. Um, and I think for the next five years or so, um, I, I don't really see that we are moving away from decoupling um, and, and uh, regionalization um, towards a, a global boom again. I just cannot see it at the moment. Okay, thank you. Uh, about mentoring and advice portion um, of the interview, what is one thing that you wish you had known when you were starting out, that would save you so much time, uh, pain, and agony. Um, what would uh, well? Um, I think I was actually pretty bad at statistics when when I even started my PhD. Um, so I, I would have loved to have more um, statistical knowledge in general. More. Uh, methodological knowledge when I started um, started my PhD. So that I think is very, very important. And at the end of the day, um, I had to be very autodidactic and, and uh, teach myself quite a lot of this, this stuff. So a more systematic approach would have been better. When I see what uh, kind of methodology courses uh, PhD students now get at any halfway decent university, um, I always get envious and then I always think, my gosh, that these guys, they, they don't know what kind of wonderful time they have here because they really get it uh, on, on a plate. And uh, so that, I think, is, is something which, uh, uh, which I can point out. That said, um, I think one has to be also careful that um, people are not too methodology focused and there has to be a balance as well because at the end of the day, uh, phenomena uh, are more important than than methods, and, and not everything can be used and can be solved with the same methods. Not everything can be solved with uh, whatever a bunch of structural equation modeling uh, approaches. Uh, but uh, to research uh, phenomena appears to be more more important. So yeah, that's that's basically my take to that one. It covers what skills uh, which skills are more important and difficult to develop is say methods, but obviously we're um, 
uh, careful about the phenomenon theory. Uh, how is the process working um, for you with your PhD students? Uh, do they come uh, come up with a great idea and you say, oh, this is the next best thing, uh, go pursue it? Or do you give them the idea? How is the process for you? Um, well, it's a little bit of an iterative process. It's, if it's a give and take. Um, I, I try to be not too directive because if I push them into an area and they just do it in order to get a PhD, their heart isn't in it. So to a certain degree, um, I think there is a danger that, that as, a, as a PhD supervisor, you become too directive and say, this is what you do, um, which perhaps serves your own publication interests, but does not serve the students. So from that point of view, I try to shy away from that. Um, the other thing is to ask questions, you know, ask questions. What, why are you interested in this? Why is why should anybody else be interested in that? What would be the contribution from a theoretical side, from a managerial side, etc.? So essentially ask loads and loads of questions um, in order to make sure that they, in a way, uh, discover the pros and cons of their own idea. Um, so, yeah. Questioning, questioning, questioning. That that's I think the key to it. Do you see do you see a difference between the current PhD students and the old ones uh, from the past? Is there um, a difference in the student body? Ah, that's uh, again an interesting question. In as far as that, um, the difference is perhaps not so much. The difference I experience here is perhaps not so much in the students themselves, but in the opportunities they get. Because uh, in the olden days, a PhD was a, a monolithic piece of work which you had to write uh, and whatever, 300 pages long, and it was all on one theme, et cetera, et cetera. And now the standard PhD we have here, at least in, in Vienna, is uh, published papers. And uh, you, need to, you, you need to publish uh, papers uh, in, in referee journals, and then you get a PhD based on that. Uh, also, uh, students now get quite a number of uh, method courses, which they have to do. They're compulsory, so they can't even opt out from them. So that, that's a big difference in the terms of approach to a PhD, but it's more of an institutional uh, difference. Um, with regards to the students, I think um, students at the moment seems to also go through some um, fashion topics, you know, nearly every second PhD is, is interested in sustainability um, and, uh, and CSR, there's a lot of demand for that. Um, and I think that is something which uh, is perhaps the flavor of the day and may change uh, in a couple of years again. Uh, what are some of the major mistakes that you see uh, young colleagues make? And mid colleagues as well. Uh, top three mistakes that you think uh, are uh, things that we should talk about. Top three mistakes. Um, I think um, that one one mistake is that uh, they should define IB research not as research in a foreign country. Um, I, I relate back to that when I was the editor of the Journal of International Marketing. Uh, we got quite a lot of submissions describing something uh, and, and trying to sell something as international, 
simply because the context was non-American or, or non-European. And they thought, okay, it's it's in China or it's in Japan or it's in wherever, and hence it's an international topic. Uh, I think that's, that's one of the mistakes. Um, so not just thinking about the, the topic. Secondly, um, don't shy away from from new topics. Uh, I think the there is a tendency to go for low risk and and look at yet another uh, moderator or mediator uh, and and uh, in an existing model and uh, be very incrementalist. Uh, I think that is relatively safe way of publishing um, has been pointed out quite a, quite a lot, but it's not that interesting. So I think um, if you are if you can afford it, if you have tenure, uh, go for something which is perhaps a new topic and uh, and open a new perspective. So that that would be my number two. The third one. Um, work with reviewers and not against reviewers. Uh, reviewers are not are not enemies to the extent that uh, they obviously criticize you and, and anybody who criticizes you, um, in particular if you're a professor and nobody criticizes you ever, no students dares, um, then, then the reviewers come along and they criticize you, then you, you very often, your initial reaction is, well, you know, how dare he or she or whatever. Um, and uh, then I think it's good to step back to perhaps put the review to the side and in a week later or a few days later, come and read it again and say, well, actually, they have a point. And perhaps, you know, I can do this better and perhaps I should have done that better. And perhaps it's my mistake because I didn't explain it well enough, etc. So essentially, think about the reviewer as really people who, by and large, there are, there are obviously exceptions, but by and large, they want to help you. And, and to recognize this and, and to embrace this uh, as something which is a creative and, and constructive process, I think that is also something which uh, which people should uh, should do. Apparently, I got uh, exceptional uh, reviewers last time. So the guy was apparently foaming in the mouth and I'm still <laughs> trying to get over that but it's been like six months. Uh, no, some people are simply um, angry, angry and bitter. Uh, I mean, I always say this uh, about some reviewers. Thank God for good uh, editors. Uh, thank God for good uh, associate editors uh, who uh, yeah. see through it. Uh, last question. What's the question that I should have asked you about Evan? <laughs> the top secret question. Um, well, I've got three passports, actually, um, three legal passports. Uh, namely, I'm Austrian, British, and German. And so I'm asked very often, uh, who do you support in international sports competitions? You know, because that's always an, an issue. So, um, yeah, you could have asked me that. There's a soccer game. I would have answered that. That's another question. <laughs> I might not answer that. Okay, who do you root for? Uh, there's uh, uh, Britain is playing against Germany. Who do you uh, root for? Ah, well, I would argue the other way around. I would say, okay, it depends on the sports because in winter, I'm I'm supporting the Austrian ski team because they tend to be quite good. Um, Britain, I tend to support in terms of motorsports and admittedly Germany in terms of soccer. So um, I, I normally do, do it that way around, yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> uh, this was uh, 
very helpful. This was interesting. Thank you so much, Bodo, for your time. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thanks. Well, thank you very much for having me and good luck with the rest of your interviews. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.